This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. Hear the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see me coming. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Can we talk? Permission to speak freely. Can I be totally honest with you? Growing up, I had a big problem with lying. I could tell you any number of stories, but I'll just give one. I was 14 years old and returning from uh, Christmas break in early January to middle school, and my friends and I were sitting at the lunch table talking about what we had received for Christmas. I don't remember who all was there, but I know for sure that there's a young blonde named Elizabeth there. Blonde hair, blue eyes, even her acne was cute. After a bit, in walked my friend and at the same time, my nemesis, Zach Wilson. Zach quickly became the king of the conversation. (laughs) He announced to all present that he had received a go-kart, a two-seater go-kart for Christmas. It's not just that he received a go-kart, 
but he already owned a Honda 70 trail bike. That's a motorcycle. And the way I saw it, the chances of Elizabeth and I getting married and growing old together were diminishing rapidly. At some point, Elizabeth looked at me and said, if any of you ever says this to me, I will kill you. She said, Teddy, how can you compare that with Zach? You can't even begin to compare that name with Zach. What did you get for Christmas? I had a choice. I could tell her about my underwear and my Monopoly game and my baseball cards, or I could lie. So I went for the lie. Not a small one, a gargantuan. Yeah, sweet Zach, I'm so glad for you. Maybe you should come by sometime to my house and play on the new roller coaster my dad built in our backyard. (laughs) I said roller coaster in my backyard. Can we talk? Permission to speak freely? Can I be totally honest with you? As I grew up, I, I had a big lying problem. Ten years later, I'm 24 years old. As many of you know, I'm coming out of college and I'm part of a startup company. After 18 months, I was convinced that I wanted out and I wanted to go to seminary. It was November of 98 and I knew I was leaving, but not until July of 99. And in order to not take the risk of being forced out and unemployed for seven months while waiting for seminary to start, I decided that I'd wait until late spring and spring the news of my departure on my good friends and business partners. In January of 99, things began to speed up. We were taking on more employees, more accounts, more clients. I was taking on more responsibility, more products, and more relationships. And my heart was shriveling up inside of me. I was keeping very pertinent information from my friends. I was lying to them by waiting for the best opportunity for me to tell them the news instead of loving them and serving them with the truth, a truth they needed to hear to navigate the future of our company. Can we talk? Permission to speak freely? Can I be totally honest with you? I've always had a lying problem. It's too easy, really, to hide behind the elusive grammar. I I think it's better to say I'm a liar. Ten years later, I, I was 34 years old, No, I I am 34 years old. This past Tuesday and Wednesday, Trisha and I got away for 24 hours. And at lunch on Tuesday, the beginning of our time together, I told her I I needed forgiveness for two things. I was shaking almost as much then as I feel like I should be now. I told her on Monday, out of frustration, I blamed her for something that was not her fault. And on Monday, she offered some pushback. She's like, really? That's my fault? And I was cornered. And instead of repenting and being humble, I upped the volume and I insisted that she was to blame. I asked her on Tuesday to forgive me and told her I was wrong and she graciously, with a smile, forgave me. Second place I needed forgiveness, I had lied to her the previous week. Bold, faced, lied. You ever notice how it's much harder to confess a lie that someone knows nothing about than the truth that they already experienced? The previous week, Trisha was talking to me on a, on a date night, and we were talking and connecting and falling in love. And in the course of the conversation, she said something like this, you didn't do X, you did Y. And she just kept going. But her assumption was wrong. 
I had done X and not Y. It was convenient. I hadn't actually said anything. I hadn't nuanced the truth with a little white lie. I mean, she wasn't even a good enough lawyer to ask me a direct question and and not answer it herself. It was really her fault, after all. And, you know, but my heart could feel the deception. My heart could feel the darkness. I could feel the beginning of death that I had brought into our relationship by not saying a word at all. And so on Tuesday... With tears in my eyes and a smile on her face, she graciously forgave me for being a liar. Enough about me. This week's passage contains uh, perhaps the most famous lie or lies in all of Scripture. We call them in this context denials, but a denial is simply a specific version or a style or an expression or a manifestation of lying. As we turn our attention to the text in Mark 14, I've spent a lot of time this week asking the question, why? Why have I lied? Why have I been a liar? Why, why do I lie? Why am I a liar? Why will I lie in the future? Further, I interviewed over a dozen of my good friends here at City Church, fellow leaders in the church. Not all the leaders, mind you, but enough of them to know that I can say with confidence, not only is the church planter at this church a liar, but the leaders of this church are liars too. It was a little awkward. It was the beginning of my research, and uh, I would simply just walk up to men and women and write in their face or on the phone the first words out of my mouth, why do you lie? As you might guess, awkward silence. People unable to make eye contact, this defensiveness rising up between us. And on a couple of occasions, I was actually afraid that they were going to unload to me something they'd been hiding for a long time. And so because I wanted to avoid that emotional breakdown and I really just wanted to do some research for my sermon, I changed strategies. I would walk up to folks and tell them, I'm doing some research for my passage this week. I would like to ask you a question. Please, just tell me, if you don't mind, why do you lie? And then after hearing those answers, which I'll share with you in a moment, I said, when was the last time you lied? How long ago was it? And what was going on in your heart when you did it? Well, the first couple of people, awkward silence, uncomfortable feet shuffling, strange breathing patterns, and so again, I let them off the hook. You're not going to have to tell me any of the details. Just kind of want to know what was going on in your heart. I'll share with you a little bit of what I learned about myself and them in a moment, but as we do, let's look first at this text. This is perhaps the most famous lie or lies in all of Scripture. Let's look at it this way. Parallel scenes, why we lie and how we can love truth. Parallel scenes, why we lie, and how we can love truth. Okay, let's get going. There's a literary technique that we're all familiar with that Mark is employing in this passage. And I I looked this week uh, far and wide to try and make sure I had the right word for it. And I'm not sure that technically this is the word you would use, but I'm calling it parallelism. Think about many of the movies that we watch. The the director gives us visual clues to to let us know that multiple scenes are happening at the exact same time. But due to the limits of the screen and, and our minds, he can only or she can only let us see one scene at a time, presenting them linearly. Within the last couple of weeks, I saw He's Just Not That Into You. Don't recommend it. And then I saw Valentine's Day. Again, don't recommend it. But in both of those movies, this parallelism is employed where you would go from one scene to the next. And then in time, you begin to understand they were all happening at the same time and they come together at the end. 
Most uh, soap operas operate this way. I, I would never know from personal experience. I just know from people telling me that the director cuts from one scene to another. And literally the scene you cut to starts up right where it was when you left. I don't watch Lost, but the staff at City Church seems to. I'm, in, I'm out in, in the dark on this one. But from what I understand, Lost, the TV show, works this way as well. In this text, Mark is not simply weaving stories together to make a literary point, but is in fact writing this in such a way that we will know that these two scenes actually happen at the same time. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, the introduction of 55 through 65. Verse 54, it interrupts the flow of the narrative. Verse 54, Peter followed at a distance, warming himself at a fire, and that is the introduction to 66 through 72. If you look at 66 and 67, you can tell that Mark is letting us know that these are happening concurrently. Verse 66, and as Peter was below, or most literally translated, meanwhile, Peter was below. Verse 67, Peter is warming himself by the fire, picking up on where he was left off in in verse 54, like a good soap opera. So let's just briefly review this passage, making note of these parallels. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to go fast. While Jesus is above being interrogated by the high priest, Peter is below being investigated by the high priest's servant. While Jesus' trial unfolds in three phases, Peter's trial unfolds in three phases. Think about it. Phase number one for Jesus, verses 55 through 59. Many false witnesses are brought against him, but no two of them have testimony that agrees or literally is consistent. By Old Testament law, uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and by the Mishnah, which was the oral commentary of the rabbis on the Old Testament law, by both of those, for a capital crime and a capital punishment, you had to have two witnesses agree almost identically. So Mark tells us in 56 and 59 that inconsistencies abounded. That There is a particular accusation that Mark gives us that was brought against Jesus. Uh, and, and I quote, that he would destroy the temple that is made with hands and in three days build another that is not made with hands. Here's why the false testimony could not line up, especially on such short notice. It wasn't true. Jesus did say similar things to this, but he never said exactly this. For example, he did predict the temple would be destroyed, but he never said he would be the one doing it. Also, John 2, two years earlier, Jesus did say something similar to this, to the charge made against him, but with one significant variation. Listen to John 2, 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, for Peter, while, at, while Jesus is, is at trial and many false witnesses can't agree on the charge, in Peter's trial, the servant girl rightly accuses him of something that is true. You were with the Nazarene Jesus. For Jesus, phase 2, verse 60, the high priest is exasperated because his witnesses can't seem to agree. And so he finally stands up and it's symbolizing his supreme authority in the room. And he asks Jesus to respond essentially to the lack of evidence, hoping that Jesus might incriminate himself by what he says. But 61, Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Now, for Peter, at the same time, the servant girl starts telling the guards who are standing by by, that, that Peter is indeed one of them. And while Jesus refuses to speak, Peter downstairs, the Greek tells us that he went off on a detailed denial. It's not simply that he denied it, but that he kept denying it. 
For Jesus, phase three, verse 61b, the high priest finally hit a nerve with Jesus, asking him about his origin and his identity. While Jesus, uh, to this point, had tried to keep his messianic reality a secret, he finally confesses. He bears witness. He speaks truth. He gives a really an an over-the-top answer. I am the Messiah. But I'm not the Messiah you're thinking of who just has a unique relationship with God as as a man. I'm the Messiah that's written about in Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. I'm the son of man. And the next time you see me, I will be riding the clouds, not the clouds of earth, but the clouds of heaven. I'll be riding the glory of God himself to judge you. A little over the top for the question. Meanwhile, for Peter, the guards hit a deep nerve in Peter, accusing him of being one of them due to his origin and identity as a Galilean. Peter gives an over-the-top answer, an explosive answer, an out-of-this-world denial that we'll come back to later. I don't know this man of whom you speak. Back to Jesus' scene, the high priest and the Sanhedrin respond with deep, visceral emotion to his answer that he is the Messiah and God himself. They rend their clothes. They condemn him to die. They treat him brutally. They spit on him. They mock him. And of course, if we just take a second and look at it, there's incredible irony. They, 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 they punch him and after blindfolding him and say, prophesy. And Matthew tells us that they say, prophesy, tell us who just punched you. And Jesus remains silent. But in his silence, he is fulfilling the prophecy he made in Mark 8, 9, and 10. There's another irony here that the high priest is in the very presence of God and is the one guilty of blasphemy. And as this is happening in Peter's scene below, Peter responds with deep, visceral emotion to the rooster's second crow, emotionally remembering Jesus' prophecy about his denial that came true, throwing himself on the ground and weeping. Now here's the point. Not only did these two events or scenes or episodes happen at the same time, one upstairs and one downstairs, but they unfolded in nearly the exact same way. And Mark records it this way, and he keeps faithful to what happened for two reasons. I think the first is to draw a contrast, and the second is to ask a question. First, the contrast. Do you see the difference between honesty and deception? Do we see the difference between self-control and being out of control? Do we see the contrast between courage and fear? Do we see in front of our eyes the difference between sacrificial love and the love of self? Do we see believing in and bearing witness to the truth, even if it hurts, versus believing in self, no matter the cost to truth? Let's think about the contrast a little further and why we lie. And in a moment, we'll ask ourselves the question in point three that this text begs us to ask. Second, why we lie. Listen to the comments I heard from my friends, men and women, who I asked point blank. Why do you lie? Tell me that this doesn't describe us, our hearts, and our motives. I lie to elevate the good and cover up the bad, to make uh, others think more highly of me. I lie to cover my uh, backside, to protect myself and avoid trouble. I lie so I, I don't lose reputation. I lie to protect my identity, uh, to preserve perception. I lie because I don't want to be discovered for who I am, so I fake it. 
So people think I'm a great guy and love Jesus. So I don't get caught. I don't want to look bad. Because I'm horrified that people would see the real me. Because I want my way. Because I think I know what's best and how I should get it. Because others are lying to me and I believe that I have to play by their rules. Some specific examples. One answered just this morning, I compulsively exaggerate and I've already done it twice today. Uh, Friday, I was on the phone with a guy and I didn't want to give him information that he wanted so I told him I didn't have it. So I avoided the conflict so he would still like me and also not have the information he needed and I would have the upper hand in our relationship. Just yesterday, someone dropped by my house and I said, so glad to see you. Stop by again soon when nothing further could be from the truth. Just this morning, I told a customer that I couldn't do something that I could do because I didn't want to do it. 35 minutes ago, it's all about nuance to me, just a little shade of the truth. This week, I said I'd do something. I forgot. I said I did it and tried to cover my tracks. I think this might be helpful. As I think about my life and as I listen to my friends and as I think about you, I think that 99% of the lies we tell, 99% of the white lies, the false truths, the not giving information when we know that people will operate off, off of false understanding without it, I think it's related to these two ideas, approval and agenda. First, approval. Inside each of us, there is a deep fear of not having approval, not having relationships, not having friends, a deep fear of being all alone, of being rejected, of being disdained. And at the same time, ironically and paradoxically, (laughs) there is a deep pride in thinking that our lives should go how we want them to go, even if it means that others' lives can't go how they want them to go. There's this deep pride, this conjoined twin of fear, this strange bedfellow in my heart of pride and fear. And it drives me to believe that I know what's best, that me being in control is good for everyone around, including you, but most of all me. Approval and agenda, fear and pride. Let's look at our text. Let's look at Peter's first lie, his first denial. In my opinion, it's driven more by approval than anything else. Verse 66, while they are seeking testimony against Jesus, a servant girl saw him and then looked at him or studied him, considered him, and his face was lit by a charcoal fire. And she said, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Now, a little history and a little context might help. We know from scripture and historic accounts, specifically the book of Acts, the gospel of John, uh, historic accounts from Jewish historians, Roman historians, Christian historians. We know that Judeans, those that, that lived generally to the west of the Dead Sea around Jerusalem, that Judeans hated Samaritans. Samaritans lived directly north to the Judeans and they generally lived to the west of the Jordan River. But in addition to hating Samaritans, more pertinent for our study this morning, they held with disdain or disrespect Galileans, those who lived north of Samaria and generally west of the Sea of Galilee. Just a reminder, Jesus is from Nazareth, a backwater town, redneck sort of village in Galilee. And Peter was a fisherman on the sea 
of Galilee. You see later that the guards are going to bring up again, you're a Galilean. Now, the servant girl in Judea thought more highly of herself than Peter from Galilee. And Peter, feeling what the townspeople felt in Sweet Home Alabama. Do you remember that movie, Sweet Home Alabama? When the grunt workers of Candace Bergen, who who was Patrick Dempsey's mom, she was a politician, and and Patrick Dempsey is marrying Reese Witherspoon down in a redneck area of Alabama. And the staff comes with Candace, um, and I don't remember her name in the movie, and I didn't think this was a good use of my time to research it this week. But um, the grunts come down, and they just flip their nose up their noses, their collective nose at anything that smelled like Alabama. And I think Peter is feeling that disdain, that disapproval, that rejection that the servant girl, uh, that she has um, no no idea what she's talking about. Peter says, "I, I got no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you mean. It's just him and a servant girl. Move on to lie two and three, or denials two and three, which I believe are driven more by agenda. Of course, it's hard to know these things and to know them with certainty, but it sure, when I think about my life, looks like this. So the servant girl follows him, sees him, and starts in on him again, this time including others, uh, more specifically the guards that had just arrested Jesus. It's past midnight. It's not in the public square. It's at Caiaphas' house. These are the thugs of the high priest. Uh, 69, this man is one of them. 70, he again denied it. He kept on denying it. Denial three, things progress. After a little while, the guards themselves pick up on his Galilean accent and say to him, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. And while the first two times Peter denied being identified with Jesus, now he denies Jesus himself. And I don't think that we can begin to understand how bad this denial was. I read one commentary this week and I thought, man, that's strange. And then I heard a sermon by a really accomplished Baptist preacher and I thought, man, he said the same thing and that's really strange. And then I read more commentaries and they kept saying this. And then I listened to uh, an older Presbyterian minister preach a sermon on this text and he said the same thing. And, And here's the point, verse 71, it says, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear Friends, you need to know that in the Greek language, there is no on himself. It simply says that he began to anathematize. I mean, what makes sense in this context? There's no reflexive verb here. There's no on himself here. That's NIV and and ESV's nice way of trying to clean up what Peter did. How do you deny your master? How do you disown them? Well, on the one side, you could bear witness to them. And own them, or you could curse them and deny them. I don't think we have any idea just how bad it was that night. And the rooster crowed a second time. And Luke tells us that Jesus looked at him knowingly and made eye contact with him. Not to beat a dead horse meaning me. But let's consider just maybe one or two of my three lies. Think, let's think, does approval and agenda help explain them? Why did I lie at 14? Approval. I wanted every person at the table to think highly of me, to think I was cool, to value me, to desire my friendship. Agenda. 
I wanted Elizabeth to like me. I wanted her to date me. I wanted her to want me. I wanted her to be the mother of my children, not Zach. Dad gummit. Why did I lie at 34? Approval. I love Trisha. I want her to like me. I want her to approve of me. I want her to justify my existence and help me feel as though I matter. She had said, you didn't do X, you did Y. But this is what I heard. You did Y and you would never do X. And what idiot would do X in the first place? And I don't want her to think I'm an idiot. I want her to think of me as stunning and brilliant and handsome and the doer of Y. (laughs) And then there's agenda. I had plans on how date night was going to end. I knew that if I said, no, honey, I did Y, not X, there was a good chance that date night was not going to be as I planned. My agenda would be thwarted, and I just don't like it when that happens. So instead of loving truth, wanting it for my bride, I chose deception. Not even a little white lie, but the lie of silence. So I could maintain control, which is really what's best for everyone, right? So finally, how can we love truth? You know, in short, um, we have to see that in Jesus and the gospel, that there's the remedy, the solution for this approval issue and this agenda issue. How can we begin to love truth? Let me engage your hearts just a little bit. Let me tap into something inside of us. I, I believe, especially for believers, that there's something inside of us that knows the slavery of deception. That inside of us, we have all lived the horror of chapter 14 that Peter's in. We have all lived the hell of telling a lie and then that lie growing in numbers of people who have heard it and the the details that need to be explained to get it to go away. And then the, the land of outlandish living that we enter into, like my dad built me a roller coaster to not be found out. We've all done that. And also I think we've all felt the freedom that comes from being honest, stepping into the light and coming clean. There's something deep inside of us that rings true when that happens, regardless of the outcome. I have a niece who's in high school now. She's a very, very sweet young woman. Uh, And I would just say that we love getting our girls uh, around her. She loves Jesus. She's humble. She serves. She's a natural leader. She's compassionate. Uh, We we love CMJ very, very much. Uh, when, When CMJ was in the fourth grade, her teacher, Mrs. Frost, was collecting homework a particularly important assignment where turning it in was almost as important as what was turned in. It was an assignment on responsibility. Mrs. Frost explained that no excuse would be taken in the project's place. CMJ realized that her project was not in her book bag, and she remembered taking it out that morning to show her dad. She must have left it on the breakfast table, so Mrs. Frost comes around to CMJ's desk, and she blurts out something to the effect, no one can remember which one she said, No one can remember if she said, I lost it or someone stole it. (laughs) Knowing full well, neither was true. She had irresponsibly left it on the table. Well, as is often the case, I don't know this personally, but I've seen it in other people's lives, that well-behaved children usually are trusted even when they shouldn't be. And so Mrs. Frost told her to try and find it and get it to her the next day. All day, CMJ was knotted up in her soul and her stomach. She felt horrible. I know exactly what that feels like. She knew she had lied. That night, her dad 
Timo knew that something was wrong in the heart of his daughter. And uh, she had already put the project into her bag. She could just get it to Mrs. Frost the next day and everything would be okay. Everything would be over. But it didn't take long for CMJ to come clean and fess up. Timo thought about it for a minute and told CMJ, get your jacket. We need to pay Mrs. Frost a little visit. Aunt Tina was livid. How dare you do that to our child? My parents would have never done that. This is ridiculous. Do you know how good this girl is? It's one mistake. She's already admitted it. Let's just let it stop here. But Uncle Timo knew that CMJ would not feel peace in her heart until she had come clean with Mrs. Frost. And why make her wait until the next day or the day after or two years later for that? CMJ is crying hysterically. She's sobbing. She's begging. She's banging the dashboard. Ten minutes of the longest ride to Mrs. Frost's house. Timo would tell you, I had no idea if I was doing the right thing. It just felt right. And they walk up the door, ring the bell. Mrs. Frost opens the door. CMJ is just bawling, curled up in the fetal position on her porch. And Timo said, she has something she needs to say. We'll just wait for her to get it out. Mrs. Frost bends down and hugs her. And just waits. Finally, she blurts it out. I lied to you. I left my project on the breakfast counter. Please forgive me. Mrs. Frost says, I do forgive you. In 24 years of teaching, no parent and no child has ever come to me to confess sins. That's amazing. I'm proud of you. As CMJ is walking away, she says, of course, this is going to affect your grade. And it did severely. As Timo and CMJ are walking to the truck, CMJ stopped halfway between the door and the curb. She said, Dad, I don't want to ever forget how I'm feeling right now. This is the best feeling I have ever felt in my life. How will this passage help us to love truth and enter into what it means to be human. How will this passage show us how that is done? First, we have to see from this passage that grace, forgiveness, and transformation can absolutely happen. Before we begin to admit that we're liars, I think we have to see on the other side (laughs) that God will transform us into truth-tellers while we repent of being liars. Think about it. If you've been reading Acts and CBR, City Bible Reading, this is the same Peter who is the foundational apostle for the church. He's preaching and he is being used by God to convert thousands. He is bearing witness. People are trying to have his shadow fall on their friends and family who are lame that they might be healed. Read Acts 1 through 12 this afternoon. You'll find a man that's articulate. He is not afraid. He is bold yet humble and he's a truth teller. In fact, you can read Clement of Alexandria in around 85 BC. He writes of Peter's death in 65, uh, excuse me, 85 AD. And he writes of Peter's death in 65 AD. And it says that Peter willingly walked to the cross of Emperor Nero, only asking that he be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die the death of his Savior. Further, just beyond the book of Acts, and we'll talk about in a moment what Peter saw that changed him, that made him into that truth teller. But consider Mark 14 itself. This is proof that Peter learned to speak. Speak the truth, even if it hurt him. Who who is Mark's chief 
eyewitness for this gospel. Peter, there is, if you think back, we've been going over this for 15 or 16 months, there is no episode in Mark's gospel where Peter is not present, either as an individual, as one of three, or collectively with the disciples. How did Mark know that Peter cursed Jesus? Think about it. There is no way that another disciple under Peter's authority is going to say about the chief apostles, he cursed Jesus. Do you know how Mark knew that Peter cursed Jesus? The chief apostle told him so. He said, I cursed the Christ. How does this transformation happen? How do you and I have the hope that this could be in our future now by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit? How can we know that this might happen? I said earlier that Mark wrote these in parallel accounts because he wanted to contrast the beauty of truth and the brutality of deception. But at the same time, he wrote it this way because he wanted us to ask a question. It's subtle, I know, at first, but it will become obvious if we'll let our minds think about it. I don't want to be too redundant, but listen to me review. While Jesus is being led to the high priest in the Sanhedrin, Peter follows into the high priest's courtyard, and he's warming himself by the guards. While Jesus is undergoing a trial of three phases, Peter is being tried in three phases. While Jesus explodes with an over-the-top answer of truth, Peter explodes with an over-the-top answer that is false, a curse, a lie. While the high priest tears his clothes in emotional shock, Peter falls to the ground and weeps with loud lamentation. And here's the question that the text begs us to ask. Why is Peter not instantly nabbed by the guards? Why didn't the guards arrest him? Why didn't the guards lead him to trial? Why didn't the guards beat him? Why didn't the guards spit on him? Why didn't the guards cover his face? Why didn't the guards strike him? Why didn't the guards mock him? Why? Because verse 65 says that when they should have done that to Peter, they received Jesus with blows. When Peter deserved to be slapped, Jesus was. When Peter deserved to be beaten with a stick, Jesus was. The guards were not in the courtyard anymore to arrest Peter because they had moved upstairs to brutally arrest the Christ. This is the gospel. What will free us up to admit the deceit of our past? What will empower us to love the truth going forward, even if it hurts? The judgment we deserve enters Jesus' scene and judges him. The hell that we deserve enters Jesus' scene and takes away his heaven. God the judge enters the dock as the witness and he is judged so that you and I don't have to be. And in fact, when we stand in the dock, we are declared righteous, not on our own, but by the beauty and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. How does the gospel deal with my approval issues? How does it deal with my agenda issues? Listen, if I have the cosmic approval of God at the expense of Jesus taking his disdain, who cares what mere mortals think about me? Who cares what mere acne-infested mortals think about me? I don't. The irony of lying is that we get approval, and sometimes we get approval, but we don't actually get approval. The fake person that we put out there gets approval. And so deep down inside, we know that we're not known. We know that we're not blessed. We know that we're not accepted. We know we're not loved. We know we're not approved. The vicious cycle 
goes on and on. In the gospel, when we repent, when we own the depths of our sin, Jesus looks at us knowingly and he pleads his blood before the Father. And he demands justice that we be approved because he was rejected. If we see the beauty of his redemptive and gracious cosmic agenda, we will want to enter into it at the expense of ourselves, even when it hurts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for teaching me this week that every lie is a denial of you. That every lie that comes out of my mouth for my approval and my agenda is unbelief of the approval and the agenda that I have in you. Would you teach me to throw myself against the ground and weep for my denials of you? Would you so convince us of your grace and your transforming power that we would come clean with you and others to live in the light of the gospel? In your name we pray, amen.